There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kramitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch with Greg Kraminski and Colin Andrews. Greg, we spent the last nine episodes discussing the evolution of finance and investing and really relating it primarily to stocks and the stock market. So today we're going to talk about fixed income or sometimes called bonds. But not all bonds are the same and not all fixed income is the same. And we've run across this a number of times recently. You've got a difference between what's called senior debt, junior debt, there's secured, unsecured, investment grade, junk bonds, etc. So what maybe listeners don't understand is that the bond market is, from what I know, about 30 times the size of the stock market and that wars have been ended based on the work of the bond market. It is the largest asset class. There's something like $100 trillion of global market cap in it. So the question becomes, how do you provide things like diversification, stability, and even a reliable income stream with bonds? Good point. I thought we should start by just talking about like what is a bond? Because a lot of people know they should own some bonds or think they should own some bonds, but really don't know what they're getting. So bond is really just a loan that you're making to somebody, whether it's a corporation, a municipality, or a government agency. So the borrower gets the cash that it needs, and you, the lender, earn interest for the term of the loan. So for the use of your money, the borrower promises to pay you a specific interest rate on a regular basis for a set period of time. And that information is really spelled out in the loan agreement with the amount of the loan, which is called the principal, the rate of interest, which is called the coupon, and the payment schedule. So for example, if you buy a $1,000 bond paying 5% interest annually for 20 years, you're entitled to receive $50 every year in interest payments for the period that you hold the bond. Those interest payments are usually semi-annually. That's correct. Most bonds that we would own would pay the interest every six months. There are some but very rare, but some where you could get paid monthly or even once a year or annually. But it's the steady and predictable stream of interest why bonds are called fixed income investments. And there's other kind of fixed income investments that many of our listeners will be familiar with. They would include guaranteed investment certificates or GICs, investment contracts, term deposits, mortgage-backed securities, and savings bonds. So our listeners in Alberta may have in the past owned Alberta savings bonds and Many of us had Canada savings bonds in the past as well. Now, the kind of bonds that we are talking about when we talk about bond investing, those bonds can be bought and sold in the open market, very similar to a stock. And when a bond matures, the borrower repays you essentially the par value of the bond, which in most cases is priced relative to $100. So when a bond is issued, it's issued at $100. And when the bond matures, $100 is paid back to the lender. And the price fluctuates in between the issuing and the maturity. It does. And that's one of the things about bonds that confuses many people. 
and just that fact that the bonds do change in value from day to day, which is unlike what people are used to with GICs or Canada Savings Bonds. But GICs themselves, and this is a debate we've had a lot over the years, they always get priced at $100 on a client statement. But if you went to sell that GIC early, would you get $100 for it? In many cases, if the issuer of the GIC does not allow you to redeem it early, then it's probably fair to price it at $100 because it doesn't really matter. That's the value you'll receive when that GIC matures. But absolutely, the reality is that if you were to go to an open market and try to sell that GIC to somebody else, you very likely would not get $100. You might get a little more, you might get a little less, but it's highly unlikely that you would actually get exactly $100. Mm -hmm. So prior to the bond's maturity, market value will vary, and it'll vary in relation to something that's happening, either in the economy or in capital markets in general. But let's just talk about how bond prices vary relative to interest rates. Let's use as an example that $1,000 bond that's paying 5% a year. Well, if after you buy that bond, if interest rates were to rise to 7%, well, then the value of your bond is going to be worth less because investors want new bonds paying more, paying the 7%. And therefore, it would only make sense that your bond will lose value because nobody would want to buy your bond, which only paid 5% interest, if they could get 7% by buying a new bond. Conversely, if interest rates were to fall to 3%, then your bond would become more valuable than other bonds issued after yours because the new bonds would only pay 3% interest, but your bond pays 5%. And that means that your bond would go up in value or appreciate and you could sell it at a premium to what you paid for it. So that's just a hypothetical example. And in reality, you'll find that the price of bonds will rise and fall, but not necessarily at an even rate. Right. And that pricing is based on the security of the bond, right? For sure. So the more secure that bond is, let's call it a government of Canada bond versus an example we used in a previous episode, I don't know, a Venezuelan bond. Those are going to be priced different. That's exactly right. We've talked in the past about factors of return, and we talked about how in fixed income, the factors that affect the bond's return are basically duration and credit quality. And the first I'm going to talk about is this term to maturity and duration. So the term to maturity is just the time until the loan is repaid. So you purchase a bond today. It's a five-year bond. Well, I guess your term to maturity would be five years. Do I got that right? Absolutely. So the factor that affects the pricing of that bond or, or how much interest the issuer has to pay you would depend on how long the bond is. So the shorter term a bond is, the less, I guess, market volatility would be involved. And the longer term, the more market volatility. So in order to entice somebody to buy a longer bond, they must have to pay a higher coupon or higher interest rate. That's the normal way that the bond markets operate is you expect if you're investing for a period of a very long time, some government bonds are issued with 30 years to maturity, then they would have to entice you to buy that long-term bond with a higher interest rate. And just out of curiosity, do you know off the top of your head the 30-year yield right now? I don't, but I'm guessing it's pretty low. I think it's under 1%, isn't it? Yeah, it's somewhere in that range. Yeah, so I can't imagine myself purchasing a 30-year government bond knowing that I'm going to earn, call it 1% a year for the next 30 years. Well, then you can see why those long-term bonds are riskier. 
Because in the example I gave, if you had a 30-year bond issued at 5% and interest rates went up to 7%, then you'd be missing out on that 2% extra interest for 30 years. So that's, uh, that's, that's a lot make of a big interest. difference. Exactly. Yeah. Basically, the term to maturities categorizes short-term, intermediate, and long-term. So short-term would be bonds or fixed-income vehicles that are less than five years. Intermediate is in between short and long, and long-term being 10 years or longer, as per our example of the 30-year government bond. It makes sense that if you have a longer time horizon, you've got the potential for things like changes to interest rates, changes to the economic cycle, I'm sure people that were buying 30-year bonds last year didn't price in a global pandemic for this year. Exactly. And they're delighted right now because, of course, they have a higher interest rate that they got on their 30-year bonds than the 30-year bond today is yielding. And so their bonds would have appreciated in value by quite a lot. The individual investor can, I don't know, change the duration of the bond portfolio that they have. But it's pretty hard when you only own a couple of bonds directly. You'd have to actively trade bonds to try to get the duration to a smaller or shorter time frame. Correct. Let's just talk about duration for a second, because many of our listeners may hear the term duration when they're talking about bond terms. And duration is really just, it's a, a measure of the bond's volatility or the amount that a bond will change in value in response to changes in interest rates. Let's do that one in English. Oh, Okay. Well, we talked about term to maturity. Okay. And the term to maturity is basically just how long from the time that you buy the bond until the bond matures. Duration basically calculates the effective life of the investment. And so what it deals with is not just the date that the principal is going to be repaid. It reflects the amount and frequency of all the payments as well as today's price. And so duration is an estimate of a bond or a bond fund's sensitivity to interest rates. And that's a little bit different. And so it really tells you how much will a bond or a bond fund change in value when interest rates rise or fall by a certain amount. Right. So the duration of the Canadian bond index, I believe, is around seven to eight years. That's correct. Yeah. That's not just that every bond is going to mature in seven to eight years, but it gives you an indication of how much those bond prices will change when interest rates move. So what about the other factor that we talked about, the factor of return and fixed income? Yeah, so the other significant factor that measures a bond's risk and also provides some expectation of return is what we call credit quality. And so credit quality is a major factor in determining what a bond's yield will be. So there's a number of independent rating agencies that people may have heard of, Dominion Bond Rating Service, Standard & Poor's, Moody's Investor Services. And they rate bonds according to the financial health of the issuer, and their estimate of its ability to make interest payments and repay your principal back at maturity. So when you buy a bond, your hope is, of course, that when you buy a bond, as we said earlier, you're lending money to either a company or a government, and you're hoping, of course, that you'll get the interest payments that are scheduled and you'll get your principal back when it matures. Now, Greg, these companies came under a lot of pressure during the global credit crisis because they had issued bond ratings higher than what some issues should have been. That's right. To a certain extent, what you're looking at are the ability of the various analysts at these bond rating services to predict with some level of certainty how creditworthy the issuer of a bond may be. 
And they may not always get it right, particularly during times like the global credit crisis, which created a lot of unforeseen problems for companies in general, and therefore the bonds issued by those companies. So when you look at the different ratings that companies could get from the bond ratings agencies, you'll find a couple of different categories. We talk about investment-grade bonds, and so those are bonds that tend to have a relatively low risk of default. If you've heard bonds referred to as having a credit rating of A, single A, or double A, or triple A, those are very high-quality bonds, and all the way down to triple B. And so it really is just showing the analyst's best estimate of how safe these companies are. But investment-grade refers to bonds rated triple B or higher, so triple B, single A, double A, and triple A. The highest rated bonds typically are government bonds, Government of Canada, for example. Which just cut its bond. That's right. So it was AAA, and I believe it's gone down to AA plus or something like that. So still very safe and obviously very unlikely that a government like a Canadian government or U.S. government would default on a bond of theirs because of a couple of reasons. First of all, the government has the ability to raise more money to pay back their debts by raising your taxes, which often can happen. And they also have the power to print money. So government bonds tend to be relatively safe. And again, certainly a Canadian or a U.S. government bond is going to be a lot safer than a Venezuelan or Argentine bond. But generally speaking, those bonds tend to be very safe. As you get into the lower credit qualities, then of course, you're talking about companies that maybe have a more cyclical business and their bonds might be rated below investment grade, which could be double B, single B, or lower. And those bonds that are below investment grade sometimes are referred to as high yield or junk bonds. And it strictly means that those bonds carry a higher risk of default. And with that higher risk, obviously comes a higher expected return. So when you buy a bond that's rated below investment grade, you should be compensated for the extra risk you're taking. And therefore, you tend to get higher coupon payments and higher interest payments from lower rated bonds. Well, even lower rated within the same corporate structure. So you've got senior debt, got subordinate debt. So we haven't really talked about that very much, but you've got bonds that are issued by a company or a province or a country, but below it within its own structure, there could be things that are unsecured. Sure. So for example, if you talk about a company, like pick any Canadian company in the oil and gas industry. Don't say any names, otherwise (laughs) we have to put a disclaimer in. (laughs) But if you think of an oil and gas company, of course, so they're going to issue a number of bonds and their debt may be scaffolded in a way where the most senior debt is actually the bank loans. And so a company might borrow money from the bank and the bank would take a lot of security in the form of collateral, let's say. And that protects the bank from defaults of the company because they have some sort of collateral attached to that particular loan. But the company may also choose to issue what's called subordinated debt. That just means they'll go borrow money from other investors or other lenders And that debt is subordinated to the bank debt. And so what that means is that if the company did run into trouble, the bank is going to get their money first. And then lenders who are holding the subordinated debt down the ladder may have a less chance of getting all of their money back. I guess an easy way for people to think about it is if you were the bank and you lent money to me and I bought a house, but then I went out and I put a whole bunch of other liens against my house because I, well, I just did. Well, who gets paid? 
the bank gets paid. The people that are second, third, fourth, fifth in charge probably aren't getting paid. Yes, exactly. And so that factors in. And so in, in selecting bonds to invest in, there's a lot of research required. And it's generally one of the reasons why we don't suggest people go out and try to do their own research when they're buying bonds. And we'll talk a little bit more about this later. So I just want to talk for a second about this relationship between bond values and interest rates, because people sometimes are thrown off by this. But as we talked earlier, when interest rates go up, then the value of your bond goes down. It's kind of like a teeter-totter. One side goes up, the other side goes down. So interest rates up, the value of bonds go down. And likewise, interest rates go down, value of bonds go up. The value of the bonds that are in the marketplace. Exactly. And that's one of the things with bond pricing, and that is that every bond out there that's trading trades relative to what interest rates are doing today. And so any change from interest rates on the day you bought the bond to today when interest rates are different, that will affect the price of the bond. Now, one of the things I'd just like to hit on as we talk about bond pricing is we can go through periods where the price of a bond goes down because of something that happened, either a change in interest rates or something affecting the company that issued the bond. We talk about this a lot with our clients these days because we did go through a period back in March when bond prices went down, even though interest rates were going down at the same time. And and there's a lot of factors of why that happened, and we can save that for future episodes. But the one thing you want to keep in mind is that if you have a bond that you paid $100 for, and it went down to $95, so you're going to be frustrated or you may be upset about the fact that the value of your bond or fund went down by 5%. The thing about bonds, though, is if you assume that at least the bonds won't default, meaning that the bonds are going to mature at some point in the future at their normal maturity date, then you can be relatively sure that the $95 bond today will recover price back to $100 at some point in the future. Future point is the day the bond matures. So when you're talking about stock markets declining by 5 or 10 or 15%, we always hope, but we're never guaranteed that the prices will recover to the level they were before. When a bond goes down to $95 from 100 you can be pretty sure it's going back up to 100 eventually. We call it a pull to par, which means the bond wants to get back to $100 or par value because that's the value that will be paid out at maturity. And so it's one of the reasons why bonds, you can have a little bit more comfort around the volatility of bond prices because you know that when they go down, they virtually always come back to the price that they were before. And and the only thing you have to do is not sell them in between. You'd expect something that's close to maturity to be priced at the maturing price. That's correct. I remember back in the global credit crisis, there was a company, I won't use their name, they had a debenture and it was trading at, I think, around $85. And it was supposed to mature at $100 in a month's time. And there were a lot of people in our office that said, this is a good deal. Like you can buy this debenture, it's going to pay you $15 in capital appreciation plus you're going to get a last coupon payment. Why wouldn't you buy this? Remember having this debate? I do. And of course, the question you have to ask yourself is, well, if it's so good and it's going to mature in less than a month, why isn't it trading at $100? And unfortunately, that company went bankrupt. Enough people in the huge institutional 
market for bonds were aware of the risk of that company, and that's why the bond was trading at $85 and not at $100. Well, there's a debate out there about should you hold individual bonds, should you buy bond funds, should you buy bond ETFs? And I don't think we're going to be able to tackle that whole debate today, but I want to get into how bonds are priced. So when you buy a bond from a bond desk, you're buying it from the inventory of that company versus the stock market where you're buying it on an auction market and you're buying it from somebody else. Everybody in the stock market, with the exception of dark pools, which we'll get into maybe another time, can see who's bidding and who's asking and the prices that they're posting in the stock market. But the bond market is a little different. And there has been a call recently to maybe change that, to have it not trade between just the inventory of a desk to the inventory of another desk, but to have more of a an auction market like the stock market. And there was an article just put out last month in Institutional Investor, and it just states that bond markets descended into chaos. Now pros are calling for structural change. This is in reference to what you talked about, this illiquidity that occurred in the bond market in March that nobody would have seen and how easily or not so easy it was to trade bonds at that time. Right. We saw some of that back in the global credit crisis as well at a time when, if you recall, and without naming any names, but there was a time when we could not sell the bond of a major Canadian bank. There was no bid for it and it could not be sold temporarily. (laughs) Not something you expect. So let's get back to what I first started this talk about was kind of the three basic ways to own bonds or fixed income. You can own them directly and you will collect the the interest payment and hopefully it'll mature when it's supposed to mature and you get your money back. But you run into a diversification problem because you can't hold that many individual bonds. So even if you held three bonds or five bonds or 10 bonds, I don't know, how much do you put into each bond and what do you do in the interim if there's a change to interest rates and how does it affect the price of those individual bonds. So that's much different than if you pooled your money in like a bond mutual fund, which is going to just pool your money with a bunch of other investors and you're just going to end up owning hundreds of bonds instead of five to 10 bonds. Exactly. And and it's just the same conversation that we have with regards to stocks. If you have a 10 stock portfolio, as we've discussed, then you have a quite a concentration risk. And meaning that if one of those stocks doesn't work out, that affects 10% of your portfolio. So if one of those companies doesn't pay back their bond, exactly. it's the same thing. You've got exactly the same problem. And people think that they can mitigate that risk by carefully picking their bonds. But unfortunately, there is no way to predict with certainty that a bond you hold is not going to have run into trouble. It's interesting that a lot of individual bondholders, when we go through times where the bond market goes down, they'll say, yeah, but it's, it'll mature in two or three or four or five years, whatever it is, and I'll get my money back. But those bond mutual funds, they went down in price, and I, how can anybody get their money back? Yeah. It's one of the misconceptions that a lot of people have is that somehow it's safer to own individual bonds because you know what the maturity date is of each individual bond, you say, well, I can just wait it out. And in another three years, that bond will mature and I'll get my money back. Well, a bond mutual fund is just a larger ladder or portfolio of bonds. So even if you have a mutual fund with a thousand bonds in it, each of those bonds has a fixed maturity date and each bond will mature. And the money that comes from the maturity will just get reinvested into new bonds. 
And so in effect, while some people feel that they think it's safer to own 10 individual bonds than a bond fund with a thousand bonds, that just can't be the case. Well, actually, there's this natural hedge against inflation and interest rate movements by just owning hundreds of bonds versus owning 10. Yeah, that's right. And of course, one of the things that is probably a little bit beyond the scope of this particular talk, but we will talk about at some point, is just the fact that in a bond fund, all of the cash flows that come from bonds paying income or paying their biannual interest payments, semi-annual, semi-annual sorry, uh, interest <laughs> payments into the fund, those get reinvested. And so uh, even if interest rates are going up, then that new money or the interest is going to buy new bonds at higher yields. I've run into this a few times over the years where you meet people and you start talking about fixed income or bonds and and these would be professionals that we're talking to. And some people say, why would you ever want to own a bond? I mean, you're going to get a higher expected return from owning stocks. You just have to hold on to them through cycles. It doesn't make any sense to own a bond. So I looked at the historical return of bonds during some of the more recent economic events, not including this current one. But in 2008, when the uh, global credit crisis hit, the Canadian stock market for the calendar year of 2008 was down about 33%. The S&P 500, kind of representing the U.S. market, was down about 37%. Yet U.S. long-term government bonds, so these are those AAA-rated, low-risk, won't-default bonds, was up 26% in that year. That's quite a difference. And Happy to have some of those in the portfolio when you go through a year like 2008. The same takes place or the same story is laid out for any of the previous economic crisis. So in 2002, the government bond index was up 18% when the S&P 500 was down 22%. In 2000, it was up 21.5% when the S&P 500 was down 9%. There's a lot of points of data we can pull from to to show that. But I guess the point I'm trying to make is for that argument of why own bonds at all. Well, most people need to take some cash out at some point from their portfolio. And if you have to take cash out of your portfolio and it's 2008 and the market's down 37%, the stock market is down 37%, but you have cash requirements, wouldn't it be nice to be able to pull from something that wasn't down? Well, that's exactly right. And we've talked from the beginning, back in the early podcasts, we talked about asset allocation and diversification. And you're right. We've said before, if somebody's only interest was earning the highest expected return without any care about volatility or concern about declines in the market value of the portfolio, then perhaps you would only own stocks. But for the rest of us mortals who don't find a 37% drop in our portfolios acceptable, then bonds are an important asset class that provides stability to the portfolio while at the same time providing a stream of income. It can help with cash flow requirements for most investors. It actually gets all the way back to uh, one of our first episodes when we talked about modern portfolio theory. And that just allowed us to earn the same return, the same expected return, with taking less risk. And that's why we have bonds in the portfolio. Otherwise, it'd just be all micro cap, small cap stocks. So what did we learn today, Greg? Well, we learned that bonds like stocks have factors of expected returns. And if you want to make your portfolio sort of angle it towards what is going to have higher expected returns, we get to choose between government bonds, which have 
lower expected returns, expected, but more safety. So they have basically very high credit quality. Or you can choose to include higher yielding corporate bonds, which have a higher expected return because of the extra coupons, because of the credit risk we're taking. But we have to take on extra risk and higher volatility with those types of bonds. I feel like we could do a whole episode on literally just the difference between corporate bonds, government bonds, secured, unsecured, debentures, et cetera, et cetera. But we're not going to have the time to get into that. We won't do that today, but that'll be an excellent talk. Yeah. So listen, let's wrap up with some serious and some fun things. You know, I just wanted to point out the importance of staying mentally healthy during these times. I know we've had sort of a friend of a friend who unfortunately succumbed to some depression. And it's easy to see why. But it's really important that we stay active and healthy during these times. And, you know, I know in our house, we're trying to do a lot of that by just getting outside and and doing things and leaning on each other when we're stressed. That's all I can say about that. I think that's really important because uh, these are unusual times and they have a greater impact on certain people. You know, I know our kids are having a lot of trouble with it because they're used to being with their friends and spending a lot more time outdoors and a lot less time with their families. And I think everyone is having to deal with that social isolation that you feel when you don't have the the connections or not able to maintain them the way you have been. So I totally agree. You've got to look for support with your families and friends and do what we can as we get through this. Yep. Some fun things that you're doing. Are you watching anything on TV these days? Or? Uh, we've just started a great series. It's actually an Israeli series. It's called The Baker and the Beauty. It is subtitled, but it's a very humorous look at the life of a, of a baker <laughs> in Israel as he encounters a very well-known socialite, and what happens between he and her. Mm, Sounds interesting. Great episodes. Well, we've just finished season 13 of Survivor, my daughter and I. Oh, you're going back and watching them all. All of them. What else are you going to do during a global pandemic? But let's talk about, are there any local events that we're doing these days? I think that sums it up. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Very tough to do uh, the typical summertime activities that we're used to from the past. So let's hope that we get back into that uh, one of these days. All right. Well, thanks for joining us today on the free lunch. We hope to be back next week when we'll be talking about something even more interesting. Sounds great. Thank you for listening to the free lunch podcast hosted by the CM group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kreminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc. 2020.